0: We just, we're talking about because it's the powerful name of Jesus, no equal, no equal, no rival, that will answer the prayer for the thing that you had today. He is that great God that will bring about that great healing that only can do. Bless His holy name. Let's have a seat. So, um... Have you ever been surprised by someone because you find out something about them and you never usually thought of them that way? You know? There's just this reality that you always kind of thought of them a certain way and you had this certain picture of them and then all of a sudden you have this experience where you find out something about them that you just never really knew before. There's a dynamic to who they are as a person There's experiences that they have as people that all of a sudden when you hear about these experiences, you're just kind of surprised and you're like, huh, I never looked at you that way and I never thought of you that way. And I would like to think that today as we study Genesis 14, that we're going to have that same experience with Abraham. You know, for many people, their introduction to Abraham started like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord right arm. Okay, okay. There we go. (laughs) There we go. But we have these pictures of Father Abraham and so we always kind of think of like Santa Claus, right? You know, he's Father Abraham and he has kids late in life and He gets these incredible promises from God, and he makes mistakes like each one of us do as he's trying to figure out the promises. And we have these different pictures of him, but it's a Santa Claus picture, I think. And then we read Genesis 14. And in Genesis 14, we get a very different picture of Abraham. He's not just a shepherd with a lot of sheep, this is not a rich guy in a Santa Claus beard, sitting in his tent. We get this very different picture of him. So in the beginning of Genesis 14, all of a sudden, we find out that there's a political issue going on in the world as known in, from the biblical perspective. And here's the deal. We call World War One World War I to us but this really is world war 1 okay there is this group of leaders from the east we're not exactly sure where the east is but they're from the east so they would have been beyond the Jordan Valley beyond that area there's a group of four kings and one of them is like who is kind of the leader of these kings, and they kind of go through kind of like Alexander the Great did, and, and other great kind of world rulers came in, and they're picking, putting all different kinds of people in subjection to themselves. So that's this picture that we have. And then one of the groups of people that they put in subjection to themselves were the people that were in the Jordan Valley. And we talked about that last week. The Jordan Valley would be kind of like Lake Champlain. And in the middle of it, instead of Lake Champlain, it would be the Dead Sea. And this is the area that, well, Lot lived there. He lived in this area uh, amongst these kings of what would be the Jordanian area. Okay? Okay? that's where he lived in this valley and they were subjected to this group from the east as well but then after 12 years they go we don't want to do this anymore and they rebel against it and they decide to no longer be subjected to those people they basically say we're done we're done we don't want to be subjected anymore So then the 13th year comes, and that's what they decide in the 13th year. And then in the 14th year, a group of kings from the east decide, yes, you are going to be subjected to us. And you watch them kind of come through, and they kind of mow all of these nations. And then they come down into the Jordan Valley, and they make war with the people that are in that Jordan Valley. Okay? Okay. Kind of interesting, first major battle in this area is in the valley around the Dead Sea, and guess where the last battle's going to be. Huh, kind of fascinating, isn't it? But anyway, so they're there, and so they basically so we find out that there's there's this war in the valley, and that's in verses eight and nine. I'm not reading all of this partially because it's just too painful to try to pronounce all those names, okay. And these kings, including the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and probably the, the northern area of Egypt and these different places, they make war with these kings. And it doesn't go well. So we'll pick up the story where it doesn't go well. Now in the valley of Siddam, which would be the valley of the Jordan, okay, that, that valleyed around the Dead Sea, Was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some of them fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. Now, it's interesting that a bitumen pit is kind of like a tar pit. And guess what usually that signifies? There's oil there. Let's think about this through, okay? In the Middle East, where is there a lot of oil? In this area, it was already there in the time of Abram. So they fled. So they are defeated. And here's the reality of what happens because they're defeated. We read on in verses 11 and 12. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sod and Gomorrah, all of their provisions, and went their way. So they basically looted the whole area and took all the wealth from that area. Now, this is interesting because in verse 12 it tells us they also took a Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went on their way. So all of a sudden, this war is personal. Okay, It's not about something that's happening to other people. All of a sudden, it's something that's happening to the story of the Bible. It's just like for some of you, I know that the Gulf War didn't feel like personal until my cousin died in it. My cousin Lance gave his life in the Gulf Wars. And so all of a sudden when I think about them, they're personal. Because they're tied to someone that I really knew, that I kind of hung out with as a kid. And so this war is all of a sudden personal to the story. In fact, we find in verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks at Mamre of Mamre the Amorite brother of Eshcol and Aner these were the allies of Abram now this is interesting because this is the first time Abram's ever been called the head of a clan he's a head of a clan of the people called the Hebrews okay and he has a relationship with the Amorites that are in his area and they have an alliance together So Abram hears about the news that Lot has been taken as the spoils of war and that he is being taken. So this is what it says in verse 14. When Abram heard this, that his kingdom had been been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, This is an interesting picture because I think that we miss a part of what it says here. I think you should underline these words in your Bible if you have it in front of you. Because here in verse 14, in verse 15 it says this. (coughs) He led forth, his and underline this, his trained men. Now this is kind of interesting. Because it's not like they just got out the rakes and the sickles and the spare knives, and whatever they had, it says that Abram had 318 men in his house, and he had trained them for this moment. Now, I have a lot of different pictures that I think of when I think of Abram. But I don't think of Abram as George Washington, the general of a small army or a militia. I don't think of him that way. Do you? You know, I still have this Santa Claus, head of a nation, living in a tent, taking care of his camels kind of picture, but it tells me something about Abram that's really interesting here. Abram was a very proactive man, and a part of the proactive nature of him was that he had trained the men of his household to be a militia. Interesting picture all of a sudden, God blows our mind and gives us this picture of Abraham that he is a warrior. And not only that, it says he led them forth, born in his household, 308 of them, and they pursued as far as Dan. Now, they were living in Hebron at the time, and they are traveling 140 miles to Dan. And they did not have SUVs, they did not have armored tanks. They had no Humvees. Their Humvee was a camel. okay. And so we see that he, this thing that they did was not a small task. And it doesn't say here that he took part of the army and he left them there as a contingent, just in case something went wrong. We see that Abram as a warrior when it came to taking care of the captives in his family, was all in. He took all of his resources, all of those that he had trained, and he pursued them to Dan. As we read on in verse 15, it says, And and he divided his forces among them by night, he and his servants, and they defeated them and pursued them to Habba, North of Damascus, which is another hundred miles. And we see that he's not doing this formal form of doing something. This is guerrilla warfare. And so he is strategically taking the resources that he has all in, traveling great distances. You know, the average person can travel about 12 to 14 miles a day. I know this because in Chicago, there is a road called Half Day Road. And Half Day Road is about 14 miles from the center of Chicago. And the reason it's called Half Day Road is why? That's about how far a person could go in a half a day. See, he was all in, and he went about this great task as a warrior against the armies of what was at that time Alexander the Great. Which is kind of crazy. 318 against who knows how many. Whole nations of people that had been in the process of mowing over every nation in the area at that time as a coalition wow verse 16 then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kingsman lot with his possessions and the women and the people so not only is he a great warrior but see i don't ever think of abram this way do you I don't think of him as a victor. I don't think of him as Patton ever. I've never thought of Abram as being Patton. I've just not ever had. He's not Kublai Khan to me. You know, he isn't this great warrior king. He isn't Arnold Schwarzkopf. He isn't these people. He's this Santa Claus leader of a new group of people that lives in a tent and has camels and is wealthy. And it's kind of laid back. And that isn't at all the picture of who he really is. God didn't call Santa Claus to be the leader of his people. The beginning of a great nation. God called a victorious warrior. And that's who the leader of his nation was. Isn't that an interesting picture? But he was all in to take care of his family that was held captive and if you look at this you can say look at two sides of it. you can say either Abram's crazy and he has just about destroyed the promise right I will make you a great people and a great nation I will bless you and I will protect you or you can see that he's going well God you have promised these things for me and because of these promises that you've given me I can be a great warrior In fact, when you listen to the nation of Israel from this point forward, they will always come back to this victory and say, God will always give us victory over those who try to hold our people captive. And if you take a look at the history of the beginning of Israel, the seven-day war and the different things that they went through, Once again, it was 318 against the world. And who always won? Israel. God has called us to be overcomers. God has promised us victory. God has promised us that we are more than conquerors. Why? Through His Son, Jesus Christ. But we are acting like Santa Clauses sitting around in our tents taking care of our camels. Instead of seeing ourselves as the victors that we're supposed to be. We muddle around in our sin and we muddle around in our lives and we don't take the promises of God the way we should. When Abram didn't take the promises well, he almost messed the whole thing out. By taking his wife and allowing her to be with another man. Because he was afraid to call him her his wife. But now all of a sudden he is being transformed by the promise. And I hope that each one of us is being transformed by the promise. So that we can be the victors that God has called us to be. That the things that we sing aren't just cute little songs. That have the ability to sing nice little harmonies. And, and they make us feel good like they're little Christian jingles instead of them being the battle hymns of the republic for a victorious people, why would God give us armor if He didn't expect us to be warriors? Hmm? Why would He not give us weapons if He didn't expect us to be able to fight Because they were fighting guerrilla warfare. This was hand-to-hand combat. They weren't sending drones in. Okay? They didn't have guided missiles. They were trained in hand-to-hand combat. And we as God's people, to be the warriors that God called us to be, we need to allow ourselves to be trained in righteousness and to live out the promises that he calls us to live. So Abraham is now the victor, and he's headed home. And he doesn't just have 318 people anymore. He has all the spoils and peoples of a valley with him. Can you imagine this ragtag group that is going? And as he's traveling back, and he's now in Canaan, and we believe that he's probably somewhere... Near what is now Jerusalem, he meets up with two kings. Verse seventeen: After he had returned from the defeated from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, that guy, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, That is the king's valley, which they believe might be actually a part of modern-day Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High. So there are these two guys that show up. One of them is a defeated king the other one is a king and a priest of the most high god the reason that probably melchizedek showed up is because this is near where he lives in this place called salem now um, is there any modern place near close to that name jerusalem And now we're going to watch his interaction with a defeated king and a king who's also a high priest of God. Here's what happens next. This is Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And so the first thing that Melchizedek does is he blesses him. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And the second thing that he does is he blesses God. Because who does Salem, this king of Salem, this Melchizedek, understand is the real victor in this? God is. He understood that what was going on here, it wasn't just simply that... Abram's great, you're the, you're, the, you're the victor. He's realizing that the reason that this victory existed, let's be honest, isn't because you're a great leader, but that you are in the hands of the greatest leader. So let's just stop for a second here, because this Melchizedek guy is an interesting guy. He's only mentioned three places in Scripture. Okay? He's mentioned here in Genesis 14. Then if you read on, he's mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4. And it's in the middle of an, a messianic prophecy about who Jesus will be. And part of this psalm talks about him being a king after the line of David. But then it also says that you will be a priest according to the line of Melchizedek. Now this is interesting because if you read in Israel's history and in Israel's law, there was a rule that said kings can't be priests. There was a separation between church and state that artificially exists in the United States, but realistically existed there. In fact, you'll find stories about kings who tried to be priests and got themselves in a lot of trouble and sometimes were just plain dead. If you read the story of Israel. But that is a mention of that. And then if you read Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, and I know one of the classes tried to drag themselves through the book of Hebrews, and uh, they learned some things, but it talked about how Jesus was a part of a better priesthood because he wasn't a priest in the line of Aaron, but he was a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Some people believe that this Melchizedek was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, something called a theophany. I don't think so. But I do think that he explained this unique thing that our Jesus Christ would be jesus christ is not only the leader but he is the one that's the go between the high priest between us and god see that's where some places is getting it wrong is they believe that you need other things to be high priests you need another mediator you need another thing. Okay, first you go through this thing. And well, in this situation, you use this thing. And in this situation, you use this person, this dead person. And in th- th- this other situation, you use this dead person. Or oh, if you're selling your house, you need to take this dead person and bury them upside down behind your... you know. And th- there's all this craziness when we only have one mediator of a better priesthood than even the Aaronic priesthood. Because even in Scripture it says that that would go away. And it did. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, Jewish religion as it existed at that time was done. It was obsolete. Remember? The curtain was torn from top to bottom. We never, no longer had to go through that ritual anymore. We could go straight to the high priest instead of the... the there wasn't the rigmarole anymore. The cross changed everything. So let's take a little look. Here, here's something interesting. Melchizedek means, in Hebrew, king of righteousness. And Salem means peace. Now, who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace? Huh, isn't it interesting? So Melchizedek blessed Abram. And he gave God glory for the victory. And this is how Abraham responded. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now it's interesting. In the story of Abraham, this is the only person that Abram ever allowed himself to be subjected to. He only ever allowed himself to be subjected to a priest of the Most High God. Who is a king of righteousness and of peace? And the way Abram responded was to give him a tenth of everything. Uh, we've got to camp here for a second because one of the things that's buzzing around about giving, even today is, well those are just those were just taxes for the nation of Israel. That's where that idea is. You can give whatever you want. It doesn't matter because those were just taxes for this. But this is really interesting, because see, the nation of Israel does not exist right now. This is pre-law. This is pre-nation. And the, the example that's given is that Abram tithed everything. Not to the priest, but to the God that the priest represented. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Because see, there's a meeting with another king. A defeated king. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, meaning give me my citizens back. But you can take all the stuff. You see, the defeated king is trying to negotiate with Victor. Okay? And when he's trying to negotiate with the victor, he's, he's trying to say, hey, let's make a deal here. Does this sound familiar at all? When Jesus Christ was in the wilderness, Satan came and tempted him with three things. He was negotiating with him, right? Because Satan, the moment Jesus was born, was what? A defeated king. And there is this sense that all of the time that Satan what's trying to do in each one of our lives, he's trying to negotiate with us. God says, "This is my standard. This is how you should live. This is how you should trust me. This is the way this should look." And we keep on going. Well, is is there some way to negotiate this something? And and as soon as those thoughts come into our mind, Satan's over there going, "Hell, I'll help you negotiate. Let's make a deal." I know that this is what God said. Does this sound like the temptation in the garden at all? What did God really say? Let's negotiate that. Maybe, maybe he didn't really mean that. He, he's just trying to hold back on you. I know you only have one rule, only one rule, one thing that you have to do to trust God. But maybe you can negotiate on that. And so the king of Sodom, and we know what Sodom stands for. We don't even know what his name means originally. They, the, the scriptures actually says this, and my research says this. We don't know what the meaning originally was, but we know what it means now. And we'll get a little more into that in a couple weeks. But there is a sense that the defeated king is always trying to negotiate. This is what Abram, the victor, says in response. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. All of a sudden he's like, I'm in a position of worship. And this is what happened when I was in that. That I will not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. And he goes on to say this in verse 24. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. In other words, I'm not, I'm not going to take anything. Okay, the guys working with me, they were hungry, they had a meal. I, I can't take that back, it's It's eaten. And the share of the men who went with me, which is these people that he had in an alliance, the Amorites. Because this was the reality. Is that he realized that this negotiation would compromise the glory that was God's. He says, hey, you know, I want the wealth and all of the promises of God to be fulfilled by God, and I'm not going to take this and handle it in a different way so that in any way you can steal from God's glory by saying that you're a part of my wealth. I I I want to be in a position. Isn't this unique? Abram was saying, as a victor, he's saying, I want to be in a position where the only place that glory can be given is to God alone. I I don't want anything to mess with that. I don't want it to be God and the king of Sodom. I I don't want it to be God and this, or God and that. And I think that there are those times, and you're going to watch Abraham as he struggles sometimes, because he sometimes feels like he has to help God with the promise, so he's adding an end to what he's saying. God and this thing. And God and that thing—it's uh, an incredible story. Have you ever thought about Abram as a warrior? Have you ever thought about Abram as a victor? Have you ever thought of yourself as a warrior? Have you have you thought that way? Have you realized that God has made you a warrior? Have you have you realized that that God has made you a warrior? That you're not a spectator. That you're a participant. Uh, do you realize that every day we're fighting a spiritual battle? And that's what, why in Scripture, in Ephesians, it says that we're supposed to put on the whole armor. Why? Because we're warriors. And did you know that the type of armor we wear is a Roman style of armor? And the Romans were so confident in their battle that they only had armament on the front of their bodies because they truly believed that no one could defeat them. And do you realize that that's the kind of armor that you have? And that Satan can never sneak up on you? That there's no such thing as a surprise attack? That Satan will always be in front of you? That there is the reality that your armor was created by a God that allows you always to see the battle? There is not this sense that the battle is on the sides of us. The battle is always in front of us. And the armor that is created for us says that, that we see that. And so in light of the scripture, and the fact that we are supposed to be like Abram, and we can learn lessons from him, I have a couple questions. First of all, we like Abram should have the role of warrior. We've got to see ourselves as that. The Word of God calls us that we are in a spiritual battle. And we're in a spiritual battle against a defeated leader. Okay? Sometimes I think the way we talk about Satan, we give him a lot more power than he has. We are fighting against a defeated leader. Now, this might be a new battle for us, but God has never entered into a skirmish where He can't say... Oh yeah, we've done this before. This is how we defeat him this time. We have got to be serious at that. And we, like Abram, should be trained for battle. We should be equipped for battle. If you're feeling ill-equipped, it's because you're not trained for battle. The most important thing that we need to do is be trained in righteousness. We need to be able to think Biblically. The only way that you're going to be able to think biblically is if you know what the Bible says. I I love the illustration. I didn't bring my tape measure in here. But I think the more we read God's Word, the mightier the sword is. And the longer the sword is. And since the enemy is always there, I want a really long sword. How about you? So the, the army can fight, you know, I, I want a little bit more than a butter knife. But I think that some of us, by the way we're approaching the training in righteousness, and the training and the understanding of God's Word, and the understanding of it's a weapon, we wonder why Satan gets so close to us. It's, well, it's because you're fighting him with a butter knife. Or with a little jackknife, and you're going, you get away from me, Satan. You know, you know, it's just ridiculous we're warriors and we need to be trained in this and i need to help you in this training this is the thing that god has called the church to do we are supposed to help train each other you need to be honest with me and say hey pastor jim i think we need training in this area this isn't just in the skills of guerrilla warfare this is in all of the things that it takes to be the soldier of character that god wants you to be But more than that, are we willing to be all in to bring back the captives? Are we? Are we willing to be all in because there is a world out there that is completely captivated by Satan and his powers? There are Christians that you know that are completely captivated by Satan and his powers and are absolutely neutralized, and are running around, and they forgot to put on their armor. Right? Are we willing to have the attitude of going all in? There was no no negotiation in this scripture. They were trained in battle, and they went into battle. You know? You've probably heard this somewhere before. It's biblical. A strong defense is the best offense. We should be warriors like Abram with a heart for God's people, those saved and those unsaved. To go all in. For the sake of the gospel. So as victors. Because I've already said that you're victors. Right? We are more than conquerors. We must recognize the difference between the kings. One king. And one voice and one leader is going to point you to the cross and to the Savior. And the other is going to give you this ability to feel like you can negotiate with God. He didn't really mean that. He didn't really say that. And we live in a world that's doing that over and over again. How can people stand in front of us and say, Oh, for over 2,000 years, this is what God's Word says. But we have studied and we're smarter, we're renegotiating, and we think it says this now instead. Is that not happening around us? But see, we need to be able to discern the voices. I don't think Sodom, the king of Sodom came in wearing you know, the stuff that still was covered with the oil from the pits. I think when he went to meet with them, he put on his good dudes and he thought about what he was going to say and he he tried to say it as persuasive as he could and, and, and make it sound as rational as possible. The Word of God says that Satan is like what? A roaring lion roaming to and fro. Did you know that a lion can paralyze its prey with its roar? And then it just walks up to him and bites him. I think there are times that Satan gets a hold of our fears and our anxieties and that and he roars at us. And we are paralyzed. And then he just walks up and takes a bite out of us. We need to recognize as victors, like Abraham, we should give God at least a tithe of everything. We've got to be all in. We've got to be incredibly generous with God. I, I've had this discussion with people. People will argue with me all the time, and they say, well, wh- what are we supposed to give to God? And I said, well, I think a tithe is where you start. They said, well, what do you mean? Isn't that like the standard? And No, I, I think you start there. Uh, I didn't start by saying, okay, Nancy, if we get married, how little can I do for you? And it'd be okay with you. I married Nancy because I was in love with her. And I've spent my life trying to figure out how to give her a little bit more. Because that's what you do. I started with a little bit of me. And every day I try to give her a little bit more of me. When I first met Jesus, I didn't know all I was supposed to give him, so I gave him a little bit of me. But when I realized what he's done for me and what he gave me, I'm trying to be more generous with him every day. If you're negotiating with God, you're listening to the wrong leader. God's called us to be all in. What does he say in his words? He says, you must be willing to take up your cross daily and deny yourself and follow him. And yet some of us are going, okay, God. What's the minimum I can do and you'll be okay with me? Right? God is calling us to be all in. But more than that, God is calling us to guard anything that distracts from the complete glory and worship of him there was a man in my church when I was in indiana i'm looking forward we're going to go see him in a couple of weeks and i'm looking forward to seeing bob and bob bob was a prophet of god and bob would say hard things to me and one of the things that he'd say to me occasionally is jim that was really good today and i'd say thank you he said I don't know if there was enough of Jesus in it, but it was really good. What Bob was saying was, you're trying to take a little bit of the glory yourself. Abram realized that he wanted his life to be one that was completely a surprise because God did amazing things, and so God received glory. Uh, Are you negotiating with God To be on the playbill? You know? Jesus Christ can be bigger than me, but I still want to be on the playbill. Are you letting people negotiate and say, well, I want to be on the playbill too? You know? Because I really helped you that one time, so can I have just at least a little bit of credit? We have to be willing to say, to God alone be the glory. And that's something you have to grow in. You don't get there right away and you're gonna probably need some Bob Simmons Bob, you know, um Bob Shores is along the way that say, Hey, you know, I think there was a little bit of too much of you in that. <laughs> it's good, but it was you were getting in the way of God. <laughs> so we can sing about the glory of God alone. And it's not just a cool song. It emulates what's going on in our heart and our lives. So, where are you at today? Are you a warrior? Pick up the armor, re enter the battle. How are you doing as a victor? Are you generous with your Lord? Are you working hard to make sure he gets credit? You know that's so counterintuitive to this world, isn't it? Today, we're we're all trying to build a resume in this world today, to make ourselves look better and to do better. And God's saying, "Oh wait, you must decrease, so I can increase." Like, well, well, that means the only there's only going to be one bullet point in my life, and that is God is good. Is that enough? I hope so. God has called us as a group of people to be His warriors, trained for battle, all in. God has called us to realize that we're already victors. And so we need to sing the song of His glory. Let's pray together. God, first of all, I pray for the people that deny there's even a battle, that deny that there's need for a Savior, that deny the fact that they need a priest and king in their lives. God, I pray that today they would be willing to admit their sinfulness and their need for a Savior, that they would be willing to bow at the cross And let the King of kings and the Lord of lords save their heart and rescue them from the captivity they live in. God, I rebuke whatever battles that they're fighting or little things that they're saying that are keeping them from that reality today. And I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. I pray that today they would bow before You and pray a simple prayer and ask You to be their Savior. To forgive their sin and take residence in their life as it is now your temple. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would call us back into the battle. And I pray that you would help us see, even though it's hard to imagine, that we are already victors and that we would figure out how to give your glory by the generosity and worship that comes from our lives god do what only you can do in each one of us i pray this in your name amen i'm going to ask you to stand around the outside of this of the sanctuary and i want us to pray one last time together as a people You see, we could buy into the lie today that we're just a little church. Okay, We're not even 318. God needs 318. When we get to 318, then we can go fight the battle. And that would be a lie, wouldn't it? Because God has called us to be warriors, and he's called us to be victors. And so how are we going to train one another so we can fight this battle, not alone, but together as God's people? Okay? And how are you going to see that we already are enough? Now, we're not enough because there's so many captives out there, right? And we want them brought into the body of Christ. There are people that you imagine right now that could butt into the two hands you're holding together, right? Say, excuse me, but I'd like to butt in here. They are those miracles, sons and daughters, employees, all these different kinds of people. But today, I want to see you to see that we are enough. One of my favorite songs as a youth pastor said this I am a wounded soldier, but I will not leave the fight because a great physician is healing me. So I'm standing in the battle in the armor of his might because his mighty power is real in me. I am loved, I am accepted by the Savior of my soul. I am loved. I am accepted. And my wounds will be made whole. We are all on the front line together, people. God has called none of us to work in support or work in the records department. We are soldiers together. Let's put on our armor. Let's act as warriors and remember we're victors because we are gods. And together you are his army so we're back to the front lines together god bless you as you fight the battles all in for the captives of your life we love you and we stand in the battle with you have a great day You tell Tom hi for me, okay?